What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Yeah, that's right. I've already done an ad on my first episode, because I'm that kind of jerk. I'm like the really eager guy at work that's just dying to be a team player during meetings, and it makes everyone's skin crawl. I'm that guy, and I don't care. And so you're probably going to hear another one in the middle of the episode, because if anyone were to actually download this, I apparently get paid like a dollar or something, and I think that's worth fighting for. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds, the cars outside the window, the creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. Today, we're going to be reading the first chapter of The Iron Heel by Jack London, uh, first published in 1908. And as I can read from Wikipedia, it is generally considered to be the earliest of the modern dystopian fiction. It chronicles the rise of an oligarch tyranny in the United States. In The Iron Heel, Jack London's socialist views are explicitly on display. A forerunner of soft science fiction novels and stories of the 1960s and 70s, the book stresses future changes in society and politics while paying much less attention to technological changes. Hmm. The book is unusual among London's writings and in the literature of the time in general in being a first-person narrative of a woman protagonist written by a man. Much of the narrative is set in the San Francisco Bay Area, including events in San Francisco and Sonoma County. <laughs> Let's learn a little bit about Jack London himself. He was born in 1876 and he died in 1916. He led a wild and colorful life. This is in the beginning of the book, so I'm not just saying this. As a youth, he left school at 14 and worked in a cannery. 
as an oyster pirate <laughs> and as a member of the Fish Patrol <laughs> in San Francisco Bay. This is already glorious. He traveled throughout the country, joined the gold rush to the Klondike in 1897, sailed to the Caribbean, studied London's East End slums. He studied them, like just stood around looking at poor people, and reported on the Russo-Japanese War for the Hearst Papers, a quality paper. Uh, he read voraciously and always dreamt of being a writer. His short stories of the Yukon were published in magazines and in a collection, the Son of the Wolf in 1900, bringing him fame. Thereafter, he published an enormous number... Oh, you probably just heard my cat. I have a cat at the top of the stairs behind the door that's just yelling at me. He published an enormous number of stories and many novels, including The Call of the Wild, White Fang, and Martin Eden? Is it Martian? It's got to be Martin. Martian? Wow. I'm feeling pretty ignorant that I don't know how to pronounce Martin or Martian. Now I probably have to look that up. Uh, but otherwise, two animal-based books and one other random one. So there you go. That is the background on the author himself. Uh, let's dive in. Chapter 1. My Eagle. The soft summer wind stirs the redwoods, and the wild water ripples sweet cadences over its mossy stones. There are butterflies in the sunshine, and from everywhere arises the drowsy hum of bees. It is so quiet and peaceful, and I sit here and ponder, Am I restless? Is it the quiet that makes me restless? It seems unreal. All the world is quiet, but it is the quiet before the storm. I strain my ears and all my senses for some betrayal of that impending storm. Oh, that it may not be premature, exclamation point, that it may not be premature, exclamation point. Oh, uh. small wonder that I am restless. I think and think, and I cannot cease from thinking. I have been in the thick of life so long that I am opposed by the peace and quiet, and I cannot forbear from dwelling upon that mad maelstrom of death and destruction so soon to bust forth. Do you hear the airplane? I do. In my ears are the cries of the stricken, and I can see, as I have seen in the past, all the marring and mangling of the sweet, beautiful flesh, and the souls torn with violence from the proud bodies and hurled to God. Thus do we poor humans attain our end, striving through carnage and destruction to bring lasting peace and happiness upon the earth. And then I am lonely. When I do not think of what is to come, I think of what has been and is no more. My eagle, beating with tireless wings the void, soaring toward what was ever his son, the flaming ideal of human freedom. I cannot sit idly by and wait for the great event that is his making, though he is not here to see. He devoted all the years of his manhood to it, and for it he gave his life. It is his handiwork. He made it. And so it is, in this anxious time of waiting, that I shall write of my husband. There is much light that I alone, of all persons living, can throw upon his character, and so noble a character cannot be blazoned forth too brightly. 
His was a great soul, and when my love grows unselfish, my chiefest regret is that he is not here to witness tomorrow's dawn. We cannot fail. He is built too stoutly and too surely for that. Woe to the iron heel! Soon shall it be thrust back from off prostrate humanity. When the word goes forth, the labor hosts all of the world shall rise. There has been nothing like it in the history of the world. The solidarity of labor is assured, and for the first time will be an international revolution wide as the world is wide. That was weirdly constructed. You see, I am full of what is impending. I have lived it day and night utterly, and for so long that it is ever present in my mind. For that matter, I cannot think of my husband without thinking of it. He was the soul of it. And how can I possibly separate the two in thought? Question mark. As I have said, there is much light that I alone can throw upon his character. It is well known that he toiled hard for liberty and suffered sore. How hard he toiled and how greatly he suffered, I well know. For I have been with him during these twenty anxious years, and I know his patience, his untiring effort, his infinite devotion to the cause for which, only two months gone, he laid down his life. I shall try to write simply, and tell here how Ernest Everhard, <laughs> oh boy, okay, that just sounds naughty right there, and I'm trying to be like a PG podcast, the jokes I could make right now, honestly, uh, ever heard. Okay, entered my life, how I first met him, how he grew until I became part of him, oh my lord, and the tremendous changes he wrought in my life. The first podcast, and right away, it's sounding nasty, but technically this is all clean and safe. In this way, you may look at him through my eyes and learn him as I learned him, in all save the things too secret and sweet for me to tell. It was in February 1912 that I first met him, when, as a guest of my father's at dinner, he came to our house in Berkeley. I cannot say that my very first impression of him was favorable. He was one of many at dinner, and in the drawing room where we gathered and waited for all to arrive, he made a rather incongruous appearance. It was Preacher's Night, as my father privately called it, and Ernest was certainly out of place in the midst of all the churchmen. In the first place, his clothes did not fit him. He wore a ready-made suit of dark cloth and was ill-adjusted to his body. In fact, no one ready-made suit of clothes ever could fit his body. And on this night, as always, the cloth bulged with his muscles. Oh, my God. <laughs> and while the coat between his shoulders, what of the heavy shoulder development was a maze of wrinkles. His neck was the neck of a prize fighter, thick and strong. So this was the social philosopher and ex-horseshoer that my father had discovered, was my thought. And he certainly looked it with those bulging muscles and bullthroat. Immediately I classified him a sort of prodigy, I thought, a hey, blind Tom of the working class. Well, we'll never know what a blind Tom means. There's a little note there, but I'm not going to click it. And then, when he shook hands with me, exclamation points, his handshake was firm and strong, but he looked at me boldly with his black eyes. Too boldly, I thought. You see, 
I was a creature of environment, and at that time had strong class instincts. Such boldness on the part of a man of my own class would have been almost unforgivable. Uh, I know that I could not avoid dropping my eyes, and I was quite relieved when I passed him on and turned to greet Bishop Morehouse, a favorite of mine, a sweet and serious man of middle age, Christ-like in appearance and goodness, and a scholar as well. But his boldness that I took to be presumption was a vital clue to the nature of Ernest Everhard. They spelled clue, C-L-E-W, instead of C-L-U-E. I'm sure it's a Victorian word that means something totally different. He was simple, direct, afraid of nothing, and he refused to waste time on conventional mannerisms. Quote, you pleased me, unquote, he expressed long afterward. And why should I not fill my eyes with that which pleases me? I have said that he was afraid of nothing. He was a natural aristocrat. And this in spite of the fact that he was in the camp of the non-aristocrats. He was a superman, a blonde beast such as Nietzsche has described. And in addition, he was aflame with democracy. In the interest of meeting the other guests, and one of my favorable impression, I forgot all about the working-class philosopher. Though once or twice at the table I noticed him, especially the twinkle in his eye as he listened to the talk of the first of one minister and then after, oh, then of another. He was humor, I thought, and I almost forgave him his clothes. But the time went by, and the dinner went by, and he never opened his mouth to speak. While the ministers talked interminably about the working class and its relation to the church and what the church had done and what was doing for it. I noticed that my father was annoyed because Ernest did not talk. Once, father took advantage of a lull and asked him to say something. But Ernest shrugged his shoulders and with a, I have nothing to say, he went on eating salted almonds. <laughs> Sounds like quite the dinner. But father was not to be denied. After a while, he said, colon, quote, We have with us a member of the working class. I'm sure that he can present things from a point of view that will be interesting and refreshing. I refer to Mr. Everhard. The others betrayed a well-mattered interest and urged Ernest for a statement of his views. Their attitude toward him was so broadly tolerant and kindly that it was really patronizing. And I saw that Ernest noted it and was amused. He looked slowly about him, and I saw the glint of laughter in his eyes. I am not versed in the courtesies of ecclesiastical controversy, he began, and then hesitated with modesty and indecision. Go on, they urged. And, Dr. Hammerfield said, We do not mind the truth that is in any man. If it is sincere, he amended. Then you separate sincerity from truth? Ernest laughed quickly. Dr. Hammerfield gasped and managed to answer, The best of us may be mistaken, young man, the best of us. Ernest's manner changed on the instant. He became another man. All right, then, he answered. And let me begin by saying that you are all mistaken. You know nothing, and worse than nothing, about the working class. Your sociology is as vicious and worthless as is your method of thinking. 
It was not so much what he said as how he said it. I roused at the first sound of his voice. It was as bold as his eyes. It was as clarion call that thrilled me. And the whole table was aroused, shaken alive from monotony and drowsiness. "'What is so dreadfully vicious and worthless in our method of thinking, young man?' Dr. Hammerfield demanded, and already there was something unpleasant in his voice and manner of utterance. "'You are metaphysicians. Metaphysicians. Metaphysical, metaphysician. All right, fine. You can prove anything by metaphysics, and, having done so, every metaphysician can prove every other metaphysician wrong. So, uh, to his own satisfaction, you are antichrists in the realm of thought, and you are mad cosmos-makers. Each of you dwells in a cosmos of his own making, created out of his own fancies and desires. You do not know the real world in which you live, and your thinking has no place in the real world except insofar as its phenomena of mental aberration. Do you know what I was reminded of as I sat at the table and listened to you talk and talk? You reminded me for all the world of scholastics of the Middle Ages who gravely and learnedly debated the absorbing question about how many angels could dance on the point of a needle. Why, my dear sirs, you are as remote from the intellectual life of the 20th century as an Indian medicine man making incantation in the primeval forest 10,000 years ago. As Ernest talked, he seemed in a fine passion. His face glowed, his eyes snapped and flashed. And his chin and jaw were eloquent with a grievousness. But it was only a way he had. It always aroused people. His smashing, sledgehammer manner of attack invariably made them forget themselves. And they were forgetting themselves now. Bishop Morehouse was leaning forward and listening intently. Exasperation and anger were flushing in the face of Dr. Hammerfield. And others were exasperated, too, and some were smiling in an amused and superior way. As for myself, I found it most enjoyable. I glanced at Father, and I was afraid he was going to giggle at the effect of this human bombshell had been guilty of launching amongst us. Your terms are rather vague, Dr. Hammerfield interrupted. Just precisely, what do you mean when you call us metaphysicians? I call you metaphysicians because you reason metaphysically, Ernest went on. Your method of reasoning is the opposite to that of science. There is no validity to your conclusions. You can prove everything and nothing. And no two of you can agree upon anything. Each of you goes into his own consciousness to explain himself and the universe as well May you lift yourselves by your own bootstraps as to explain consciousness uh, by consciousness. I do not understand, Bishop Morehouse said. It seems to me that all the things of the mind are metaphysical. That most exact and convincing of all scientists, mathematics, is sheerly metaphysical. Each and every thought process of the scientific reasoner is metaphysical. Surely you agree with me? As you say... You do not understand, Ernest replied. Ernest is just really 
going crazy right now, man. He's indestructible. The metaphysician reasons deductively out of his own subjectivity. The scientist reasons inductively from the facts of experience. The metaphysician reasons from theory to facts. The scientist reasons from facts to theory. The metaphysician explains the universe by himself. The scientist explains the universe, oh, explains himself by the universe. Thank God we are not scientists, Dr. Hammerfield murmured complacently. What are you then? Ernest demanded. Philosophers. There you go, Ernest laughed. You have left the real and solid earth and are up in the air with a word for a flying machine. And pray come down to earth and tell me precisely what do you mean by philosophy? Philosophy is... Oh, quote... Parenthesis, Dr. Hammerfield paused and cleared his throat. End parenthesis, then a big old dash, and then another quote, which wasn't closed off. Something that cannot be defined comprehensively, except to such minds and temperaments that are philosophical. The narrow scientist with his nose in a test tube cannot understand philosophy. Ernest ignored the thrust. Again. It's just begging for me to make jokes that I can't make on a family-friendly podcast. It was always his way to turn the point back upon an opponent. And he did it now, with a beaming brotherliness of face and utterance. Then you will undoubtedly understand the definition I shall now make of philosophy. But before I make it, I shall challenge you to point out error in it. Or to remain silent. Oh, remain a silent metaphysician. Jeez. Philosophy is merely the weirdest science of all. Its reasoning method is the same as that of any other particular science and of all peculiar sciences. And by the same method of reasoning, the inductive method, philosophy fuses all particular sciences into one great science. As Spencer says, the data of any particular science are particularly unified knowledge. If philosophy unifies the knowledge uh, that is contributed by all the sciences, philosophy is the science of science. The master of science, if you please. How do you like my definition? <laughs> Very credible. Very credible, Dr. Hammerfield muttered lamely, but Ernest was merciless. Remember, he warned, my definition is fatal to metaphysics. If you do not now point out a flaw in my definition, you are disqualified later on from advancing metaphysical arguments. You must go through life seeking that flaw and remaining metaphysically silent until you have found it. Ernest waited. The silence was painful. Dr. Hammerfield was pained. He was also puzzled. Ernest's sledgehammer attack disconcerted him. He was not used to the oh, he was not used to the simple and direct method of controversy. He looked appealingly around the table, but no one answered for him. I caught father grinning into his napkin. There is another way of disqualifying the metaphysicians, Ernest said, when he had rendered Dr. Hammerfield's discomfiture complete. Judge them by their works. What have they done for mankind beyond the spinning of airy fancies and the mistaking of their own shadows for gods? They have added to the gaiety of mankind, I grant, but 
What tangible good... Oh, I just got an alert from next door. Someone has a problem with someone breaking into their garage. That's the neighborhood I just moved into. I uh, bought a house, and I set up my basement to have a little space just for podcasting, and I'm getting alerts talking about how people are getting their homes broken into. This is fantastic. All on my podcast. They have added to the gaiety of mankind, I grant, but what tangible good have they brought for mankind? They philosophized, if you will pardon my misuse of the word, about the heart as the seat of the emotions, while the scientists were formulating the circulation of the blood. They declaimed about famine and pestilence as being scourges of God, while the scientists were building granaries and draining cities. They builded, they builded gods in their own shapes and out of their own desires, while the scientists were building roads and bridges. They were describing the Earth as the center of the universe, while the scientists were discovering America and probing space for the stars and the laws of the stars. In short, metaphysicians have done nothing, absolutely nothing for mankind, step by step, before the advance of science they have been driven back. As fast as the ascertained facts of science have been have overthrown their subjective explanations of things, they have made new subjective explanations of things, including explanations of the latest ascertained facts. And this, I doubt not, will go on doing to the end of time. Gentlemen, a metaphysician is a medicine man. The difference between you and the Eskimo is who makes a fur-clad blubber-eating god a merely, is merely a difference of several thousand years of ascertained facts. That is all. Ooh. Making fun of Eskimos. And yet, the thought of Aristotle ruled Europe for twelve centuries, Dr. Bellingford announced pompously. And Aristotle was a metaphysician. Dr. Pallingford glanced around the table and was rewarded by nods and smiles of approval. Your illustration is most unfortunate, Ernest replied. You refer to a very dark period in human history. In fact, we call that period the Dark Ages. A period wherein science was raped by the metaphysicians, wherein physics became a search for the philosopher's stone, wherein chemistry became alchemy, and astronomy became astrology. Sorry, the domination of Aristotle's thought. <laughs> Dr. Bellingford looked pained. Then he brightened up and said, Granted, this horrible picture you have drawn, yet you must confess... That metaphysics was inherently potent in so far as it drew humanity out of its dark period and on into the illumination of the sea. Oh, that's a spider. Just sitting right there. Okay, that's disturbing. Jesus criminy. Uh, illumination of the succeeding centuries. Metaphysics had nothing to do with it, Ernest retorted. What? Dr. Hammerfield cried. It was not the thinking and the speculation that led to the voyages of discovery. Ah, my dear sir, Ernest smiled. I thought you were disqualified. You have not yet picked out the flaw in my definition of philosophy. <laughs> you are now on, an uns un now on an unsubstantial basis. But it is the way of the metaphysicians, and I forgive you. No, I repeat, metaphysicians had nothing to do with it. Bread and butter... Silks and jewels, dollars and cents, and, incidentally, the closing up of the overland trade routes to India were the things that caused the voyages of discovery. 
With the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Turks blocked the way of the caravans to India. The traders of Europe had to find another route. There was the original cause for the voyages of discovery. Columbus sailed to find a new route to the Indies. It is so stated in all the history books, incidentally. New facts were learned about the nature, size, and form of the earth. And polemic 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 system went glimmering. Dr. Hammerfield snorted. You mm, did not agree with me? Ernest queried. Then wherein am I wrong? I can only reaffirm my position, Dr. Hammerfield retorted tartly. It is too long a story to enter into now. No story is too long for the scientist, Ernest said sweetly. Oh, I didn't read that right. It was supposed to be sweetly. That is why the scientist gets to places. That is why he got to America. I shall not describe the whole evening, though it is a joy to me to recall every moment, every detail of those first hours of my coming to know Ernest Everhard. Battle Royale raged. And the ministers grew red-faced and excited, especially at the moments when Ernest called them romantic philosophers, shadow projectors. Oh, projectors. It's broken up weird. Shadow-project-ors. So, all right, I screwed that one up fine. And similar things. And always he checked them back for facts. The facts. Oh, the fact, man. The irrefutable fact. He would proclaim triumphantly when he had brought one of them a cropper. He bristled with facts. He tripped them up with facts. Am, am, ambushed? Nope. Ambus dashed. The next line is C-A-D-E-D. Ambuscaded them with facts. Wow, they're just really breaking this up in a way that's impossible to read out loud. Bombarded them with broadsides of facts. You seem to worship at the shrine of fact. Dr. Hammerfield taunted him. <laughs> there is no God but fact. And Mr. Everhard is its prophet, Dr. Ballingford paraphrased. Ernest smiled, acquiesced. I'm like the man from Texas, he said. And I'm being solicited, he explained. You see, the man from Missouri always says, you gotta show me. But the man from Texas says, you gotta put it in my hand. Some good down-home stuff right here. From which it is apparent that he is no metaphysician. Another time, when Ernest had just said that the metaphysical philosophers could never stand the test of truth, Dr. Hamfield suddenly demanded, What is the test of truth, young man? Will you kindly explain what is so long puzzled wiser heads than yours? Certainly, Ernest answered because he's got all the answers, his cocksuredness. Again, family-friendly, but cocksuredness just excites me in ways that I can't describe. Well, it's his cocksuredness uh, irritated them. The wise heads have puzzled so sorely over truth because they went up to the air after it. Had they remained on solid earth, they would have found it easily enough. A-A-Y- 
comma, they would have found that they themselves were precisely testing truth with every practical act and thought of their lives. The test! Mm-hmm, the test! Dr. Hammerfield repeated impatiently. Never mind the preamble. Give us that which we have sought for so long, the test of truth. Give it to us, as we will be as gods. There was an impolite and sneering skepticism in his words and manner that secretly pleased most of them at the table, though it seemed to bother Bishop Morehouse. Hmm. Dr. Jordan has stated it very clearly, Ernest said. His test of truth his test of truth is Will it work? Will you trust your life to it? Pish doctor Hammerfield sneered. You have not taken Bishop Berkeley into account. He has never been answered. The noblest metaphysician of them all. Metaphysician. I'm just screwing this whole thing up now. I've never heard the metaphysician. There, I can say it out loud. Ernest laughed. But your example is unfortunate. As Berkeley himself attested, his metaphysics didn't work. Dr. Hammerfield was angry. Righteously angry. It was as though he had caught Ernest in a theft or a lie. Young man, he trumpeted, that statement is on par with all you have uttered tonight. It is a base and unwarranted assumption. I am quite crushed, Ernest murmured meekly, only I do not know what it would hit me. You'll have to put it in my hand, doctor. Oh, I see he's doing the whole southern thing again. I will, I will, Dr. Hammerfield spluttered. How do you know? You do not know that Bishop Berkeley attested that his metaphysics did not work. You do not, you have no proof, young man. They have always worked. I take it as proof that Dr. Berkeley's metaphysicians did not work. Metaphysics. I'm really screwing this up. For some reason, everything involving the word metaphysics or metaphysicians is completely throwing me off, and I don't know why. Ernest paused calmly for a moment. I'm doing the pause right now. Because Berkeley made an invariable practice of going through doors instead of walls. Because he trusted his life to a solid bread and butter and roast beef because he shaved himself with a razor that worked when it removed the hair from his face. But those are actual things, Dr. Hammerfield cried. Metaphysics, I'm not screwing that up, is of the mind. And they work in the mind, Ernest queried softly. The others nodded. And then a multitude of angels can dance on the point of a needle, in the mind, Ernest went on reflectively, and a blubber-eating fur-clad god can exist and work in the mind, and there are no proofs to the contrary. In the mind. I suppose, doctor, you live in the mind? Hmm? My mind is a kingdom, was the answer. Uh, the other way of saying that you live up in the air, but you come back to Earth at mealtime, I am sure, and when an earthquake happens along. Or, or tell me, Doctor, do you have no apprehension in an earthquake that is an uh, incorporeal body that yours that will be hit by a miracle brick? Instantly and quite unconsciously, Dr. Hammerfield's hand shot up to his head where a scar disappeared under the hair. It happened that Ernest had blundered on an opposite illustration. Dr. Hammerfield had been nearly killed in the Great Earthquake by a falling chimney. Oh, the Great Earthquake has got a, uh, a number next to it that I will not click. To f All right, fine, I'll click it. We'll find out what the Great Earthquake is. 
the Great Earthquake of 1906 AD that destroyed San Francisco. Okay, so how do I go back? Oh, come on. I can't go back. I'm using a Kindle right now on my iPad. So now I'm trapped in the appendix. Oh. All right. You got to give me a second. I'm going to figure this out. Okay, there. Remind me to never look up any kind of reference in a Kindle because you just can't get back. All right. So we found about the Great Earthquake uh, by a falling chimney. Everybody broke out into roars of laughter. Well, Ernest asked when the merriment had subsided. Proofs to the contrary. And in the silence, he asked again. Well, he said, still well, but not so well. That argument of yours. Dr. Hammerfield was temporarily crushed, and the battle raged on in new directions. On point after point, Ernest challenged the ministers. When they affirmed that they knew the working class, he told them fundamental truths about the working class that they did not know and challenged them for disproofs. He gave them facts, always facts, checked their excursions into the air and brought them back to the solid earth and its facts. How the scene comes back to me. I can hear him now, with what war note in his voice, flaying them with facts. Each fact a lash that stung and stung again, and was merciless. He took no quarter and gave none. I can never forget the flaying he gave them at the end. Quote, You have repeatedly confessed tonight by direct avowal of ignorant statement. Sorry, that was broken up weird. That you do not know the working class, but you are not to be blamed for this. How can you know anything about the working class? You do not live in the same locality with the working class. You herd with the capitalist class and other locality, and why not? It is the capitalist class that pays you, that feeds you, that puts uh, the very clothes on your backs that you are wearing here tonight. And in return, you preach to your employers the brands of metaphysics that are especially acceptable to them. And, oh, this is underlined by people. That's what I love about the Kindle. You get to see what the popular lines are. So this is a popular line right here, so get ready for it. Uh, Acceptable to them. And, here's underlined, the especially acceptable brands that are acceptable because they do not menace the established order of society. That's a line in here that people have been calling out as like one of the great lines of this book. (sighs) All right. Here, there was a stir of dissent around the table. Oh, I'm not challenging your sincerity, and Ernest continued. You are sincere. You preach what you believe. There lies in your strength and your value to the capitalist class. But should you change your belief to something that menaces the established order, your preaching would be unacceptable to your employers, and you would be discharged. Every little while, someone or another of you is so discharged. Am I not right? There's a number there for being discharged that I am not going to click because it's going to send me off, and I will never get back to Oh, Oh, we're almost done. Here we go. Big finale. This time... There was no dissent. They sat dumbly acquiescent, with the exception of Dr. Hammerfield, who said, 
It is when their thinking is wrong that they are asked to resign. Which is another way of saying when their thinking is unacceptable, Ernest answered, and then went on, So I say to you, go ahead and preach you, you, and earn your pay, but for goodness sake, leave the working class alone. You belong in the enemy's camp. You have nothing in common with their working class. Your hands are soft with the work of others who perform for you. Your stomachs are round with the plentitude of eating. Parentheses. And I'm holding my hand up to my mouth to whisper to you. Here, Dr. Bellingford winced, and every eye glanced at his prodigious girth. It was said that he had not seen his own feet in years. Quote, and your minds are filled with doctrines that are buttresses of the established order. You are as much mercenaries, sincere mercenaries, I grant, as were the men of the Swiss Guard. There's another little number there I'm not going to click and learn more about the Swiss Guard. Be true to your salt and your hire. Guard with your preaching the interests of your employers. But do not come down to the working class and serve as false leaders. You cannot honestly be in the two camps at once. The working class is done without you. Believe me, the working class will continue to do without you. And furthermore, the working class can do better without you than with you. And that concludes Chapter 1. So what did we learn today? We learned that even though the author wrote the book from the point of view of a female character, she's still completely secondary and non-important. Uh, she sits at a table and listens to the men talk, which is what we're used to, so I suppose it's a good thing. We learn that uh, I can't say metaphysical and metaphysician without getting screwed up to an embarrassing degree. We learn that my cats are loud. We learn that Kindle isn't the best platform in the world to try to read a, a book and create a podcast from. Oh, we also learn that uh, I have spiders in my basement. That was pretty disgusting. That wasn't fake. That was just right over there on the wall staring. He's still there. <laughs> oh my god. Ah. Uh, we learn that uh, priests are bad. So the takeaway from this entire experience is um, never do it again. Thank you for listening. Hopefully I won't get bored of this and I'll continue doing it. Uh, I, I'm sure I'll awkwardly slide a commercial in the middle of this. Uh, and I think terrifyingly enough, I'm going to have to read the commercials for Anchor, which is the platform I decided to use with this. So I'm going to have to sadly read an article or read some sort of like pre-prepared language. It's going to be disturbing and it's going to suck for all of us. But uh, thank you for taking the time to sit through this whole thing. And um, I'll try to finish this book. Wouldn't that be nice? Enjoy.